Thank you so much, Rabbi Tatz, for such an incredible presentation. My name is Yara Cantor, and I'm a, a member of the Medical Ethics Society. It's my distinct honor to introduce the final speaker of today's conference, Rabbi Dr. Zalman Levine. Rabbi Dr. Levine is director of the Fertility Institute of New Jersey and New York, senior physician at Axio Women's Health, and board-certified specialist in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. He received his BA from Yeshiva University, Smicha from Reitz, and MD from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. After his residency at Einstein and Montefiore, he served as clinical and research fellow in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the Harvard Medical School. He has been leading the Fertility Institute for 20 years with a clinical expertise encompassing all areas of assisted reproductive technologies, including in vitro fertilization, pre-implantation genetic testing, third-party reproduction, and egg and embryo freezing for fertility preservation. With that, it's my great privilege to introduce Rabbi Dr. Zalman Levine. Hello, everybody. Thank you for that introduction, and Yasha Koach to Leva and Jonah and all the officers and board members of the, uh, the Medical Ethics Society for all of your hard work in putting this together today. Um, I hope you feel that it's been, it's come off okay, but it seems like a, a great event, and, um, and I hope everybody's been enjoying it. And I also would like to wish a, uh, a real thank you to Rabbi Dr. Eddie Reichman. I know you're not here right now, but maybe you're listening, or maybe you'll listen to it. Uh, in the future, but I'd like to thank you for all of your mentorship of the society and your mentorship of my daughter Daphna during her undergraduate career here at YU and uh, during her leadership of the Medical Ethics Society um, in those times. So thank you all. The Birshus uh, Rabbi Feldman, my Morda Asra, whom you had the privilege, all of you, of hearing from today also. The, um, as our foundational text Safer Bracious really establishes the importance and the value of reproduction and fertility to Judaism and really to all of humanity. The very first seed of the Torah to the very first person, Adam Arishon, of course, was Pruervu Umiluis Aretz. And that Sivoy was repeated to Noach after the Mabul. And that Sivoy was uh, repeated again to Yaakov of Inu Prey Urve, Ukalgo Yimi Yemi Mecca. The value of reproduction and the bracha of reproduction was, is listed in the Torah and Sefer Dvarim in Parshas Ekev. The Torah lists all the good things that will happen to us if we listen to him. And Baruch Mikol Ha'amim, Lo Akarva There won't be any infertility among you. And we know that there was infertility among the Avos and Imahos. Vatihi Sarai Akara Ein La Valad Sarai Imenu Rivka Imenu Vayatar Yitzchak Lashem Nochachishto Ki Akarahi And of course Rachel Imenu Vatomer El Yaakov Havali Vanim Vim Ayin Mesa Anochi And even Leah, whom we think of as the fertile one of the Imahos, had what we would call now secondary infertility. Vatera Leah Ki Amda Milades. She stopped conceiving. And we see in Sefer Bracious also how the Avos and Imahos put forth so much effort to really try to overcome 
their challenges of infertility. We see the concept of tzfila, and we also see some interesting attempts at almost medical attempts, call them through the use of third-party reproduction. Sarah gave Hagar to Avraham to try to build a family through Hagar. That may not have worked exactly the way Sarah Imenu envisions it, but it probably did work the way Rachel Imenu envisions it when she gave her servant Bilha to Yaakov. She said, and that same thing happened with Leah when she suffered from her secondary infertility. She gave her servant Zilpah to Yaakov also, presumably for the same reasons. So Sefer Bracious really does um, set the stage for us and, and, and really highlight for us the importance of procreation and reproduction and the value of really striving towards fertility to try to overcome the challenge of infertility when it presents itself. Now, a few thousand years later in Tufshin Pei Gimel, we have an increasing uh, number of tools and increasing tools with increasing power to be able to help couples who are suffering from infertility. And I'd like to really highlight to you, first of all, to tell you that in the treatment of infertility, which I take care of people all the time, this is what I do, there are halachic questions that come up and halachic issues that come up all the time. And the halachic issues that come up really span a wide range of questions and concerns ranging from Hilchos Nida to Hilchos Shabbos, questions about sperm procurement, to uh, questions, as Rabbi Tatz was saying, of maternity and paternity, who's the mother and who's the father, and this has impact on various halachos, halachos of Yerusha, halachos of Yibum, halachos of Kahuna, halachos of Pijona Ben, halachos of Brismila, as we heard alluded to before. There are so many questions, huh? questions of mamzerus that come out of these, these issues. And um, there are so many different halakhic aspects to the treatment of infertility that makes the practice of infertility fascinating and requires input from poskim at every level of the way. And that also makes the treatment of infertility very extra, extra challenging for from halakha keeping couples who are suffering from the, the challenge of infertility. What I'd really like to do now, because there's not sufficient time to really do much in terms of talking about these many issues, what I'd like to do is focus on two areas of assisted reproduction that are the, probably have brought the most revolutionary changes in the world of assisted reproduction over the last very recent amount of time, over the last year or two or three. Um, and these two areas of assisted reproduction carry with them their own halachic issues, but have really revolutionized the treatment of infertility through the use of assisted reproductive techniques. The first that I'd like to give you Rashi Prakimon is a technique which Rabbi Tatz was talking about, it's, um, but it's a little bit different the way we do this on a regular basis every day. It's called PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. Most of what Rabbi Tatz was talking about was what's called PGTM, which is pre-implantation genetic testing for monogenic diseases for a single gene mutation. 
And those are things that we use, not necessarily every single day. They're more on rare occasions when, when these important issues come up, very important occasions, but less common. But things that I'm doing every single day on couples are, involve pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. And this is done when I'm treating a couple with IVF. In vitro fertilization has been around now for about 45 years in the clinical armamentarium. In fact, the first IVF baby was born in July of 1978, so we're coming up on 45 years. And during those 45 years, significant and progressive advancements have been made in the field that have allowed a tremendous increase in the success rates from IVF that we can offer to couples um, who are going through this process. In IVF, we take a, an egg, we take eggs from the wife, we get sperm from the husband, we facilitate fertilization in the laboratory, as Rabbi Tatz was describing before, and we grow the embryos in the laboratory. And now we have a bunch of embryos in front of us that we've cultured out to a certain number of days of development. And the bugaboo of assisted reproduction of IVF all along through these past 45 years has been the question of embryo selection. How do we take from a group of embryos, do we select an embryo that has the best chances of being able to become a pregnancy that has the highest potential implantation rate? Because that's what we want. We want to put an embryo inside of the wife's uterus, which is called the process, that process is called the embryo transfer. We transfer the embryo from the laboratory into the uterus. And we would like to be able to give that couple the best possible chances of that embryo implanting and becoming a successful pregnancy. How do we choose? So for most of the years of IVF until very recently, we used very, a very crude method, embryo selection. And that was based on the morphology of the embryo under the microscope. We would look at each embryo under a high power microscope and we would assess the morphology of the embryo. There were different characteristics of the embryo. We would grade each embryo based on these morphologic characteristics. And based on that, choose the proper, the, the, the best embryo. Essentially what we were doing is looking under the microscope, taking the best looking embryo and doing an embryo transfer with that one. But we knew this was a very crude method and we knew that this was really a very weak way of selecting a good embryo because morphology really did not correlate very well with subsequent implantation rates. It just didn't. It was the best we had, but it was what we, what we were able to do. Now, because of two major advancements um, in, in the laboratory world, and many of the advancements in IVF have been kind of a combination of clinical advancements and laboratory advancements, which we've put them together and they help couples get a better chance of success. In this case, these, there are two particular major, major changes in the laboratory world that we've been able to, to, to work with over the past several years. One of them is the increase in sophistication of embryo culture. We're now able to culture embryos for longer than we've ever been able to before. Up until somewhat recently, we were only able to culture embryos in the lab up until about day three of embryo development, at which stage, as Rabbi Dr. Tess said before, the embryo is a ball of about eight cells, each of which is totipotential, has the capability of forming the entire human body because a cell has not identified itself yet as a brain cell or a liver cell or a kidney cell. The cells have not started differentiating yet and we would remove a cell and do testing on the embryo as Rabbi Dr. Tass mentioned before. Now, we can grow an embryo all the way out to day seven 
which is amazing that we're talking about these uh, difference of just a few days. It seems like, okay, big deal, day three, day seven, who really cares? But there's a fundamental shift in embryo development between day three and day seven of development, often day three and day five even. By day five to six to seven, an embryo becomes a blastocyst. And a blastocyst is characterized by a very rudimentary, the very beginnings of cellular differentiation. So that in a blastocyst, when I look at a blastocyst under the microscope, at one end of the blast, at one pole of the blastocyst, I see a cluster of cells, which is called the inner cell mass. And that cluster of cells, the inner cell mass, will become the actual fetus itself, will become the body of the fetus. And around the periphery of the embryo are cells that are called trophoblast cells. It's called the trophectoderm. And those cells will become the placenta. So the cells have started sorting themselves out into fetal cells and placental cells, and they all come from the same DNA. They're all coming from the same embryo, from the same egg and the same sperm. But now I can see a difference between these two cell lines within the embryo. What, what we can then do because of these two cell lines is if I want to biopsy the embryo, if I'd like to take some samples of cells from the embryo, I can stay far away from the inner cell mass, which will become the fetus, and we can make a little slit in the outer layer of the embryo called the zona pellucida with a laser, with a very fine medical laser, and through that slit I can remove a few trophectoderm cells, a few trophoblasts, five or six trophoblast cells. So this actually is more accurate than on a day three embryo because a day three embryo I'm removing just one cell. In a day five embryo, in a day six to seven embryo, whenever it becomes a blastocyst, I'm able to remove a few more cells and get that much more genetic material to work with. And we've become much more sophisticated in terms of our genetic testing techniques. We used to use fish fluorescence in situ hybridization, and that was not so accurate, and we weren't able to test all the chromosomes. Now, using much more, much more sophisticated genetic testing techniques and much more accurate genetic testing techniques, now we use something called next-generation sequencing. We can also use SNP testing, and we can use CGH, comparative genomic hybridization. We can really get a pretty accurate assessment of the, the chromosomal makeup of the embryos. Now, we have learned that what causes the majority of failed implantations of embryos that do not make it to pregnancy, and also the majority of pregnancy losses of miscarriages during pregnancy, occur because of an abnormality in the complement of chromosomes in the embryo. Every cell in our bodies, and every cell in an early body of an embryo as well, has 23 pairs of chromosomes for a total of 46. 23 chromosomes derived maternally from our mothers, 23 chromosomes derived paternally from our fathers for a total of 46. The number of chromosomes in a cell is called the cell's ploidy, and a cell that has the proper number of chromosomes, that's 46 chromosomes, is called a euploid cell, E-U-P-L-O-I-D, an embryo that has the proper number of chromosomes. An embryo which has one or more extra chromosomes or one or more missing chromosomes is called an aneuploid cell, not a euploid cell, an aneuploid cell. And we've learned that aneuploidy is the most common cause of a failed implantation, an embryo that does not take, 
and also the most common cause of miscarriage. So now, if I can take a blastocyst in the lab and I can safely biopsy the blastocyst without damaging it or without traumatizing it all, and I can do very accurate testing of those genes, I, of those chromosomes, I know for each embryo whether it's euploid or whether it's aneuploid. And I'm doing this now, probably about 95% of my patients who are undergoing IVF, I'm doing this kind of testing, this kind of PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, testing on these embryos. And the reason why I'm doing it so commonly for people now and why this has really revolutionized the field is because I can take now a single biopsied euploid embryo and transfer it into a woman's uterus and be able to tell that couple that their chances of a pregnancy, not 100%, I don't think medicine will ever get there. I think Hashem will always hold them and will always have that element of hashkacha. But I can tell them now that there's an 80% chance of a pregnancy, which is crazy in the world of, of IVF. Just to give you a frame of reference, when I started my fellowship about 25 years ago, I was counseling patients that if we put in a single embryo into the uterus, each embryo will have an implantation rate of about 15 to 19%. And this is now 80% chance of a pregnancy by putting in a euploid embryo, which is amazing. What this has also done is it has also allowed me to reduce the risk of multiple pregnancy for couples. The, the incidence of multiple pregnancy throughout the United States and throughout the world really just 10 years ago was skyrocketing, mostly because of the increasing utilization of assisted reproduction. The more couples that did IVF, the higher the chances were of, of a multiple pregnancy because since the implantation rate of each embryo was so relatively low, I was routinely putting in more than one embryo, sometimes two embryos, sometimes even three or four or five embryos, depending on the couple's particular situation, their age, the quality of their embryos, all this. And so that would be great to help increase the chances of a pregnancy, but the risk of it was increasing the chances of a multiple pregnancy and then dealing with the consequences of that. And in fact, I actually spoke here at the, um, at the, the conference for the, the Medical Ethics Society in 2007, that's now 16 years ago, and the topic that I spoke about was really the medical and mostly halachic aspects of multifetal reduction. I spoke about the idea of taking a quadruplet pregnancy and understanding that it, the quadruplets were all creating a tremendous risk for both the mother and for the fetuses, for each fraternal fetus, and taking, a, let's say, a quadruplet pregnancy and stopping the heartbeats of one of the fetuses or two of the fetuses or three of the fetuses to leave the pregnancy as a singleton, perhaps, or a twin pregnancy. And this was a major issue. This has become now so much less of an issue because with an 80% implantation rate for a euploid blastocyst, for pretty much all of my couples with rare extensions now, I'm recommending that we do a single embryo transfer. And yes, with a single embryo transfer, there's still a chance that there can be what's called monozygotic twinning, where the embryo splits into, you know, man plans and Hashem laughs. There are things happen that you don't necessarily expect. So the incidence of uh, twin pregnancy is not zero, but it's much, much closer to zero than, than it's ever been before. And we're routinely now doing this PGTA on embryos and doing single embryo transfers. And of course, this creates a host of halakhic questions, which have mostly, there's a consensus of psaq that these are not major issues, but they are issues that need to be dealt with because I'm routinely discarding embryos because I'm looking for euploid embryos. At least 50% of embryos typically are aneuploid. So on a regular basis, every single day, I'm discarding aneuploid embryos. So what is the status of an embryo in halakha? Does an embryo 
is an embryo life? And am I doing an abortion by discarding an aneuploid embryo? Is an embryo pre-life? Is an embryo potential life? Is an embryo property? Is it a combination of property and some degree of life? Or does halacha maybe actually not attribute any status at all to an, a microscopic group of cells in a micro drop of fluid in a petri dish in an incubator? Maybe it just has no halachic status. Maybe it's even less than the maya ba'alma that the Gemara that the Gemara describes an early pregnancy at less than 40 days. Maybe it's even less than Ayyub Alma. It's not even water. It's a substance that's just not recognized and doesn't exist. The vast consensus, the consensus of halachic opinion of postkim throughout all segments of the, of the from world pretty much all say that yes, while an embryo needs to be treated with, of course, great respect as potential life, there are no formal isurim that are involved. This is not abortion. It's not causing a havala in a mother because the mother is, it's not in the mother. It's not ritzicha. There's no actual life unlike what the Christians believe. Um, it's, we really can, can discard an embryo, certainly an aneuploid embryo, but even a euploid embryo, if we're at the point where we're discarding, we can discard. We can also um, donate the embryos to research and do research on the embryos, and that's not a halachic problem at all. It becomes a little more complicated when we're talking about when we're talking about donating the embryo to another couple for embryo adoption, which is an option that couples have when they're done with their extra embryos in IVF, then it becomes more complicated in terms of who's the mother and who's the father. Yes, those may be more um, issues that have real, you know, halachic implications. And from couples, I've found, are not so excited about donating their embryos to another couple. I do have one from couple who did donate their embryos, but most couples usually either donate the embryos to science or um, just have me discard them. And by the way, when I'm discarding embryos, I'm not actually, even if theoretically the embryo is life, and I've spoken with, um, with Christian clergy about this also, because in Christianity, they believe that, fertile, that life begins at fertilization. And embryos actually have a kind of a, some sort of you know sanctity of life, uh, maybe even more than a person who's born who's imbued with you know sin or whatever they you know their theology describes. So for the Christians, but I always tell them that I'm not actually killing the embryo. Um, I'm not looking at the embryo under a microscope and putting a needle through it and you know crushing the embryo microscopically. To discard an embryo, I basically just sort of remove it from the incubator or remove it from the cryotank, let it thaw, let it sit in the lab at, at room temperature and without the proper environment of the incubator, without the proper temperature and pH and CO2 levels and O2 levels and all that, the embryo just won't survive, so it'll just kind of die off on its own. But anyway, and one of the other major issues that has come up with the advent of this very, very commonly used PGTA is gender selection. That's something that many couples now have the option of doing because if I'm doing PGTA for almost all of the embryos that I'm helping couples build in the lab, so I know about all the chromosomes, including the sex chromosomes. So I know whether a particular embryo is an XX embryo, a female embryo, or whether it's an XY, a male embryo. And in all of my patients, everybody has very different feelings about this. It's just fascinating to see how people have very strong feelings one way or another. Some people want to know the genders of their embryos. Some people don't want to know, even among the people that don't want to know. Some want me to, to let them know after I do the embryo transfer what the gender would be. Some people want me to 
write it on a piece of paper and put it in an envelope so that they can open it up at a gender reveal party at some point in the future. Um, among couples who do want to know the genders, some couples want me to select the gender. They want me to put in Dafka a euploid female or a euploid male for their own reasons. And increasingly, couples, and including from couples, are, going, are undergoing IVF not because they have any fertility issues, but so that they can make embryos, do PGTA, and be able to select the particular gender. And I have a from couple right now that's going through this um, who have several boys, and they're plotting to have that girl, and they've never had any fertility problems, and there's no reason to expect that they would right now while their testing is fine, but they want IVF to be able to do that girl. And we did IVF, and they had two euploid embryos, which is great, they're in their later 30s. They had two euploid embryos, they were both male. They said, don't discard them, we don't know what we want to do with them, but hold on to them, let's do IVF again. They did IVF again, and I just, I, I have their PGTA results just from this week, from Friday, and I spoke with them on Friday to say it was another male. They had one euploid and another male, so now they have three male embryos, and they're now considering what to do. Do they want to go through IVF again to try again for a female? Do they want to just be happy with their boys and not even try again for another pregnancy at all? Do they want to, yes, have a pregnancy and now maybe not struggle the girl as much? Or maybe they should actually try on their own now because if they use these embryos, it's 100% going to be another boy. If they try on their own, they'll have a 50-50 chance of having a girl. So they're deciding actively what to do. I'm going to talk to them tomorrow and see what, what their thoughts are. But these are Maisen B'cholyom. These are people that are coming for every single day for these purposes. The other topic that I want to briefly bring up um, is an also increasingly prevalent um, area in reproductive medicine that I am able to help couples with and women with and that I've been seeing more and more and more um, over, over these the past few years and really over the past year or two even since, since corona. I've been, I've been getting this question more and more and more now that people are kind of out in the world more but they feel like they've lost a couple of years of their life through the pandemic. And this is the area of fertility preservation. Um, we know that for women, the fertility potential decreases significantly with increasing age. And this is true for men also, but it's more measurable and more discreet. You know, women's reproductive careers are bracketed by observable events of menarche, the onset of menses at one end, and menopause, the cessation of menses on the other end. And so we, we know that, that, that female fertility decreases slowly and gradually and progressively over that time. There's a group of, of people called the Hutterite people who came originally from Switzerland and a group of them migrated to the United States in the late 18, 1870s, I think 1880s, um, into the Dakota territories at the time, now North Dakota and South Dakota. And the Hutterites are an interesting people. They're very religious. They are Anabaptists, which is kind of similar to Amish and Mennonite religions. Um, and they have very tight communities. In the 1950s to 1960s, they were actually used for study purposes, with their permission, of course. There was nothing invasive that was done, but they were used for study purposes as a model of an ideal, ideal fertility in a population. They were used for this purpose because they are an insular community, so they live kind of in the same geographic area, so they're easy to be in touch with and to study. They keep very tight fertility records. Their churches keep records of all marriages and children that come from those marriages. 
they are, they are prohibited, strictly prohibited from using any form of contraception, even if it's a rhythm method, nothing. They're not allowed to, to prevent, do anything to prevent a pregnancy. They place a very strong value on early marriage, and they place a very strong value of having large families. They have no economic disincentives to having large families because they're a socialized community. So they're a great community to study to see an ideal community with no outside influences, with you know, who are just going through natural fertility. What are what are what does fertility look like? What's the epidemiology of fertility in this in this population? And one of the important um, one of the important analyses that came from this were based on data about female age and fertility potential. And what we know from the Hutterite data from 50 year plus years ago is that for women at the age of 30, the prevalence of infertility was about 2.5%. For women at the age of 35, the prevalence of infertility was about 11%. At the age of 40, the prevalence of infertility was 33%. And when women got to the age of 45, the prevalence of infertility was about 90%, about 87%. Which these data really demonstrate the increasing rates of infertility in starting with the early 30s really moving much more into the later 30s really accelerating at that point and really accelerating into the, through the early 40s and based on those data there's been a lot of emphasis now on thinking about fertility preservation which will allow us to be able to continue to have children beyond the point when naturally that might be expected I was recently on a, a family trip during the YU break, and we were eating a lovely communal Shabbos meal at a local Chabad, sitting at a table, talking to the people. One of the people at our table was a 36-year-old uh, from attorney, a gentleman from, from the New York area. And after lunch, he came over to me, and he said, I hope it's okay, doctor. Do you mind if, if I discuss something with you that's been a lot on my mind? And I said, of course. And he said to me, I'm 36 years old and I really am looking to settle down. I've been looking for Shiduchim for a while and I have a problem. I've envisioned always having a large family. I've always envisioned having five or six children. And I've been getting set up with women who are about my age, 36-ish years old. And I've been finding that when I get set up with 36-year-old women, we are, we're matim. We seem like we're, we connect to each other, we have similar life situations, and I feel like there's the potential for relationships there. But I also know that if I marry a 36-year-old woman, that our chances together of being able to have five or six children will not be very high. And so I've been asking the Shadchanim also to set me up with younger women, and I've been going out also with women who are in their early to mid-20s, who are 10 plus years younger than I, and I know that from a fertility point of view this might make sense for me, but from a relationship point of view it just doesn't really seem to work. We are on different pages, I feel very discordant in terms of what we can talk about, and I'm not sure that there's really such a great future there for, for us. What should I do? Oh my goodness, what am I supposed to say? I was really hoping that right then I would have Rabbi Dr. Efrat Sabolovsky with us so she can help me talk. She's obviously devoting so much of her life's energy to helping to establish Yiduchim and uh, build Jewish families through YU Connects. I was also really hoping that I wishing that my esteemed brother-in-law, Dr. Yitzchak Schechter, would be there also. He's, uh, he and his team have been gathering a lot of data about dating practices and shiduchim in various segments of the from community for the purpose of trying to, to help with shadchanus 
throughout the from world, but unfortunately neither of them was with me, so I had to kind of do this on my own. And I, sat, I did talk to him, and we had a, a decently long conversation, and I said that I think what I would probably advise is to find your Azer Connecto, to find the person that's right for you, to find the person that you think from a relationship point of view will work. And then, let's say you find somebody who's 36, and you're getting serious together, and maybe you're engaged, and maybe you're married. Then what I would suggest is that you sit down and talk to a reproductive endocrinologist, about the possibility of fertility preservation by doing IVF. Don't try to have children yet, but soon after you're married at 36 years old, do IVF, do PGTA on your embryos, so we, we know which embryos are euploid, freeze those embryos, we freeze them in liquid nitrogen at almost 400 degrees below zero, so they stay in suspended animation, and hold on to those embryos, because there's a good chance, hopefully, that you won't need an IVF, you'll have, be fine to get to your first child. Let's say you have your first child at 37. Let's say you have your second child with no problems at 39. Let's say, Amir Tzashem, you have your third child at 41. Let's say now you're 43 and you're trying to have child number four, or beyond that child number four, or maybe number six, uh, five or six, you, you may not have such an easy time conceiving because the Hutterite data show us that there's a very, very high prevalence of infertility at that point. But now you'll have these 36-year-old embryos that you can use to continue to have children beyond when you otherwise might have been able to. And it's not the uterus that ages, it's the ovaries and the eggs that age. So the chances at 45 years old of having a pregnancy from 36-year-old embryos, euploid cryopreserved blastocyst embryos, are just as high as the chances of having a child at the age of 36. So, it's, so that is something that many couples are now thinking about, and that really opens up vistas of opportunity, and maybe takes some pressure also off of the shidduch crisis, because part of the shidduchim, part of the shidduch challenge, is that men like him are looking for younger women, and are, you know, women as they get into their mid-30s have less, less of a prospect in terms of finding shidduchim, and maybe that, now that doesn't really need to be such an issue more. And this, of course, carries halacha questions because I'm doing IVF on a couple not for any medical reason, but for the possible future use, for possible future fertility preservation. Are we allowed to get sperm for this purpose? Are we allowed to? Parshas Mishpatim, now, the week of Parshas Mishpatim that we're in right now, says, Verapo Yerape, the Gemara learns, Mikanchanitan Rashus Lerofim Lerapos. I'm not actually healing anybody. There's no medical problem here. There's no infertility problem here. But I'm thinking about the future. And of course, that's for Jewish values also, for halachic values, for the mitzvah of Pruervu down the road, if it hasn't been fulfilled yet, for Lasheves Yitzara. There's, there's a Pasuk in Tefer Yeshayahu that says, Lo Sohu Vira'a. Hashem didn't create the world to be Tohu Vavohu. Lasheves Yitzara. He created the world to be inhabited. And from that, the Gemara learns that it's on us to inhabit, it's, it's imperative for us to inhabit the world, to populate it with people. Shlomo HaMelech in, Parsha, in Sefer Kohela says, Ba'erev Tizra Sadecha, Gemara learns from that that we should never stop trying to have children. So certainly we're not doing this stam as something elective. We're doing it because a couple would like to have a large family and they would like to do this for, you know, Jewish values and Jewish ethical reasons and halachic reasons. But still, it's questionable. It has to be grappled with. And for women, for single women, women who have not found the right person yet, so this, these women are now able to freeze eggs rather than embryos. For embryos, you need sperm involvement. For freezing eggs, obviously, you just need the woman herself. 
Eggs have always been much more difficult to freeze, actually more difficult than any other bodily tissue. We've been able to freeze sperm since maybe the 1940s or 1950s. We've been able to freeze embryos since the 1980s. Eggs are much more difficult for two main reasons. First of all, the biggest uh, risk to a biologic cell in the freezing process is ice crystal formation. Cells have water content in them. The water freezes, forms ice crystals. Ice crystals can be sharp and jagged and they can tear apart the cell. So eggs, that problem is even more acute than for most cells because of all the cells in the human body, the egg has the greatest water content. An egg is 90% water by volume. So when you freeze the egg, it has even more risk of ice crystal formation. And the second reason is even more fundamental that eggs are in the midst of, as Rabbi Dr. Tat said, in the midst of meiosis. They're held in meiotic arrest until the time of fertilization. So as being part in, in the process of meiosis, there are chromosomes which are lined up on each pole of the oocyte, of the egg. And those chromosomes are connected by thin strands, thin protein strands, called the spindle apparatus. These are gossamer thin spider web type strands that span the cell going from one set of chromosomes to the next. And if that spindle apparatus is disrupted, such as by trauma from ice crystals, the, the egg cell becomes completely non-functional. It's not capable of continuing meiosis. It's not capable of fertilization. You've essentially killed the cell or killed its capabilities in reproduction. So it's been very hard to do. But with advances in freezing technology, we now use certain chemicals called cryoprotectants that can help to prevent ice crystals from forming. And we have a new uh, freezing technology called vitrification, where we flash freeze the egg um, we drop its temperature in milliseconds from body temperature essentially to 400 degrees below zero in liquid nitrogen. And by doing that, we really obviate any, any real risk from ice crystals and damage to the egg. And now we're very reliably, with almost 100% reliability, not quite 100%, but almost, we're able to freeze an egg with knowing that we'll be able to subsequently thaw it and subsequently fertilize it and it will have as good a capability of fertilization and leading to a pregnancy as it would have had if it were a fresh egg. So this actually empowers single women who have not yet found the right person to be able to preserve their fertility for the future by freezing their eggs and holding on to them. Um, this is great and this has opened up, this has really created a tsunami in the reproductive world because there are so many people in the firm community and the non-firm community um, who have these concerns and are now able to maybe allay some of those concerns and not be as worried about the biological clock ticking because they have these eggs waiting that they're holding in the wings for potential future use. Um, but what it also does is it creates pressure on people that may not be fair because a person may decide to do egg freezing on her own grade, but she may decide to do it because she's got to keep up with other people's shidduch resumes, other people who have frozen eggs, and now they need to freeze eggs also to make themselves more quote-unquote marketable in the shidduch world. So we don't really want people to feel that kind of pressure, but people are feeling it. We do want this to be an opportunity for people to take advantage of if, if they choose to, but these technologies are very widely available right now, and I'm seeing much, much more of them. So, I, you know, safer bracious does not address um, or even hint at, to my knowledge, PGTA. Um, it doesn't hint at these methods of fertility preservation using embryo freezing and egg freezing, embryo banking and egg banking. 
but it certainly does establish the value system for us that, and the, the value system for procreation in general, for striving to have children, the value system for trying to help people and create new technologies and new hishtablis to be able to help people overcome the challenges of infertility and have children now and into the future. And I thank you all. Thank you so much, Dr. Levine, for coming and sharing your insights with us. This marks the end of our program. Thank you all for coming. I know that it's Super Bowl Sunday, so I'm going to get you all out of here in a second. Um, just a few announcements. We recorded all the presentations, so just keep a lookout for an email, or we'll be posted on, posting it on YU Torah for you guys all to see. Um, also, a reminder that if you present your Medical Ethics Society sticker at the farm sale, you'll get a 5% discount. Um, also, someone left a ring in the bathroom, so if you know whose it is, come to me. Thank you. What? Mincha? And there's Mincha now. <laughs> There'll be a mincha in the front right corner for anyone interested.